we flat irons? All right, all right, all right. I have a confession to make, okay? A little confession time tonight. I feel like I've been uh, leading you guys on a little bit with these Rocky shirts that I've been wearing uh, week after week in this series. I, I never meant to mislead you. I, I've been a lifelong baseball fan, but I am a bandwagon Rockies fan. I just have to fess up to that because the very first Rockies game I ever went to was last year, Game 4 National League Championship Series. If you know what happened in game four, you understand because we swept the Arizona Diamondbacks. You catch that use of the word we. I say we now. We swept the Arizona Diamondbacks in four games. And it was, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment because the guy who made the last out was this, this dude named Eric Burns who had been running his mouth the entire series about how the, the Diamondbacks were actually the better team. The Rockies were just getting lucky. He makes that last out. He slides into first base in this place. It just erupts. And if you've ever been a part of a, a sporting event like this, I've been a part of a lot of them. So it's just a, a great moment because people who you've never known, met, or spoken to in your life become like family. I mean, to the degree that like you see grown men with no shirts on chest bumping repeatedly and people are high-fiving and hugging each other. I mean, it's just this huge, huge party. And I, I just want you to see a picture, just a glimpse of what that looked like last year. Check this out. You know what I didn't see in the stadium or in the streets? I didn't see one person walking around going, what's everybody all excited about? I didn't see one person walking around going, what's, what's the big deal? I didn't see one person walking around going, could, shh, could you guys keep it down a little bit? I didn't see one person doing that. Why? Because everybody understands this was an event worth celebrating. And we humans, we, we know that when, when there's an event worth celebrating, we really know how to celebrate. I mean, when you go to a Bronco game, you understand when you get there that the entire place is oriented, even, even the architecture of the place is oriented around the event, the game, the, the, the team. When we all go to the Rockies game tomorrow, you're going to go and you're going to find that everything is oriented around the Rockies because we find them worth it. We find them worth celebrating. And I don't know what your church experience has been. I don't, I don't know if maybe this is the first time you've ever walked into a church. I would venture to say for most of us at the very least, even if you didn't grow up going to church, you've probably been forced to go to church for various reasons throughout your life, whether it's for somebody else's wedding or funeral or baptism or confirmation or first communion or something like that. I don't know what your church experience is. Maybe you were one of those people who was like literally born into the church nursery and you've been in church every weekend ever since. I don't know what that looks like. Even if, even if this was your first time in church tonight, I want to ask you a question. I want you to get in your mind all your church experience, the accumulation of all your church experience, and I have to ask you a question. Does your church experience feel anything like a football game, a baseball game, or a party? Does it feel anything like that? You see, because I had lots of different church experiences growing up, all kinds of different denominations and stuff like that. And as a very young child, I came to a very bold conclusion about God because of my church experience. My conclusion was simply this, God must not like loud noises, running, or children. That was my, that was my conclusion because every time I found myself in God's house, people were telling me to be quiet and not to run. I'm like, I don't like to be quiet and I love to run. So my assumption was apparently God has sensitive ears. He doesn't like kids who run and he must not love kids because kids like to run and talk loudly. So that was how my brain kind of assimilated all of my church experience. And I don't know where you're coming from, but 
Rarely does walking into church feel like you've just stepped into a party. I like to feel like we scratch the surface sometimes around here. Maybe for you, your church experience has been more like walking into a library or a museum. Because apparently that's the type of environment that matches God's personality, right? Or maybe not. Because when God decided to come to this earth and really reveal to us his personality as best as he possibly could without us like being obliterated in front of how awesome he is. I mean, when he decided to do that and he walked around on this earth, Jesus was most accused of being an overeating drunk who partied too much. Did you know that? I mean, that's what he was accused of. And some of you are going, no way, that's not in the Bible. Let me see. It's all over the place. Every time Jesus hung out with partiers and sinners, he was accused right alongside of them. Isn't that strange? I mean, his first miracle, do you know what it was? Turning water into wine. He's at this wedding feast and they run out of wine. And it says this. I don't, I'm not kidding you. It says this. It says the guests had already had their fill. Jesus made more. That's what he did. Now, here's the thing. I've actually heard a preacher preach an entire sermon on how it wasn't actually wine. It was grape juice. Why do religious people have such a fear of a good party? Why is that? Philip Yancey asked this great question. He says this, How did Jesus, the only perfect person in history, manage to attract the notoriously imperfect people like you and me? See, Jesus hung out with people who lived wild lives, people who partied, and every time he did, the religious people stood outside and they whispered, and they muttered, and they thought, and they spoke, and they accused, and they looked down on him with disapproving eyes. And here's one of the things. I love many things about Jesus. One of the things I love most about Jesus is every time these religious people muttered about him, thought about him, whispered about him, confronted he wouldn't let them off the hook. He didn't let them walk away without him having confronted them in all their self-righteousness. Every time Jesus confronts them, and perhaps the most famous occurrence of that happening was in the book of Luke chapter 15. If you got your Bibles, go to Luke 15. We're going to live there tonight. It's page 726 in your Flatirons Bible. And this is a really famous part of the Bible. Jesus is going to tell three stories here. The Bible calls these parables, which basically means comparisons. Meaning he's going to take something for his current audience that's very familiar and understandable for them. And he's going to compare it to something unfamiliar and not as understandable. And that's what we try to do in here week after week after week. That's why we have series with titles like this. And we make comparisons all the time. These are just our modern day versions of parables. And so Jesus dives in in Luke chapter 15 beginning in verse 1. He says this. Now the tax collectors and notice the quotes around sinners... We're all gathering around to hear him. This is Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told him this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Here we go. Rejoice with me. Let's have a party. I've found my sheep. And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing, more partying in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And we're going to unpack a lot of the implications of that in the next couple stories. But we've got a clue here that maybe God likes to party. Apparently, there's an event that God deems worthy of celebration. And he understood that we wouldn't necessarily get it. So he tells another story. Verse 8. 
Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I've found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I imagine if Jesus was telling this story today to make it a little more relevant, he would perhaps talk about the the lost remote. Because I don't know about you... But in my house, when the remote gets lost, which happens frequently because I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old, everything stops. You can ask my wife about this. Everything stops. We cease and desist whatever we were doing, and we, we scour the house for the remote. We have found the remote in all kinds of crazy places. You know, the backyard, the dog's bold, you know, all kinds of places. And when we find it, we celebrate. We throw a party. Okay, I do, all right? But, but, but it's a big moment. And here's the thing, there's apparently something that God deems worth partying for. And then he transitions us into what has been called by followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus alike, the best short story ever written. And he tells the story of, of this lost son. And if you're a parent, have you ever lost your child even for a second? Do you remember that feeling? That moment when you turn around in the grocery store or in the mall and you don't see him for like half a second. And then that half a second, you lose 10 years of your life, don't you? It's happened to me many times. I, I was in Arizona last week with, with my family and kids. I was speaking at a camp and we we're up in the mountains of Prescott. You don't say Prescott, you say Prescott down there. That's just word of advice. That's free, all right? And so when, when we're there... When we're there, my son Eli's climbing over all these rocks. We're on our way up to our cabin. We're letting him climb all over these rocks. And he's fast. He's, he's fast even when he's climbing over rocks. So he climbs up these big boulders. He gets around this cabin and he walks around the corner. And we're telling him, stop, stop, stop. But he's two and he's a boy. So that doesn't mean anything to him. And so we, we chase up that direction, go in that direction. By the time we get around the cabin, he's nowhere. I mean, he's gone. And we are in the Arizona mountains where there are javelina pigs, those things with the crazy tusks, and there are, there are snakes, and there are scorpions, and there are spiders, all of which my son would love to wrestle with, you know? And so we are looking for Eli for five whole minutes. And if you're not a parent, you're going, that's not very long. Parents, five minutes, that's an eternity. Now, I want you to take that ache, that nauseous feeling where you begin to shake and you start to panic and you start to really, I mean, you fast forward. There's so many places you go in your mind in those five minutes. I want you to take that feeling into this story. Look at verse 11. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Wild living. You have to understand, culturally speaking, what what this son is basically saying to his father is, dad, I wish you were dead. Could you just hand over my inheritance now? Because you mean nothing to me. And we don't know why this son feels this way. We don't know if he just feels bogged down, tied down, or restrained. We don't know if he just has a wild hair. All we know is this young man is hell-bent on having his own way. And the best translation of the word wild here would be riotous. He's going to live a riotous life. And the the best translation of the word living is biography. He's going to write a wild story. I mean, he's on his way to Vegas, basically. 
He's going to experience what he wants to experience, do what he wants to do, and no one's going to stop him, so he hits the road. And I'll be honest with you, I I searched long and hard. I listened to theologian after theologian. I I read commentary after commentary, trying to find someone, some religious person who could just, you know, best articulate what was going on in the heart, in the life, in the mind of this young man. And I finally stumbled across these theologians known as the Foo Fighters. I mean, run it. Long road to ruin. I mean, running through hell, heaven can wait. I mean, this, this kid, he's dead set on doing what he wants to do, no matter what the price is going to be. That's what he's doing. We'll pick it up in verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired, out, hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This is called a low point in this guy's life. I mean, remember, this story is being told in a Jewish context where eating pigs is not kosher, much less eating with pigs. This is a bad moment. You ever had a moment like that? A moment where you're going, how did I get here? How could I have gone so far? How did I end up in this place? A moment of sheer shame and embarrassment, a a feeling of overwhelming failure. This is that moment for this son. At our recovery ministry, we say all the time that your recovery can't begin until your level of desperation exceeds your level of embarrassment. It's so true. C.S. Lewis said it differently. He said this, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud the avaricious, the self-righteous. They're the ones in danger of that. And we pick it up in verse 17. When he came to his senses, key phrase, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I'll seek out and go back to my father and say to him, he rehearses a speech, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. So he comes to his senses. He has a change of heart. He rehearses his speech and he hopes for the best. And by the way, the best in his mind would be simply being allowed back on the property. He has no illusions of being called a son ever again by someone he once called father. He's, he's hoping to be a slave at best. But he has this moment where he comes to his senses and he simply looks at his life and he turns. The Bible word for this is to Repent. It simply means to turn away from whatever's stealing your life from you, to stop walking down the road of ruin you set your course on and turn and walk home. That's what it means. And so this son begins to walk home and he's hoping for the best. And we pick it up in the second half of verse 20 when it says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupted and said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they begin to celebrate. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, picture it, this dignified, wealthy father running out of the compassion that's welling up in his heart for his son. And he throws his arms around his son's emaciated body and he begins showering him, lavishing him with with kisses. Now, I imagine that was a, a rough moment for that son when he saw his father running towards him. 
From a long way off, he sees his dad running this way, and he's going, oh, this is not going to turn out well for me. Dad is more angry than I thought he would be, apparently getting on the property I was hoping for too much. He's, he's probably thinking, dad is going to waylay me right in this spot. And I imagine when his dad, when I imagine when he threw his arms around him, I imagine the sun flinched, and I imagine they fell to the ground. And I imagine this son was literally crushed by his father's love. And he begins his speech. He begins rehearsing his speech. And he, he says, hey, you know, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy. And the father interrupts. He says, enough of that. And he takes a son who's wearing rags and he says, put a robe. Put the best one on him. To a son who has no authority, he doesn't oversee anybody. He regains his status. He gives it back to him by giving him a ring so that everybody knows he's his father's son. You listen to what he says. To a son who's been, who's been living as a slave, has no sandals on his feet. He says, no, 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 you're, you're my son. Put some sandals on his feet. And what do they do? They throw a party. They celebrate. Now, I imagine that was no small celebration. This was no reserved party. This was not a middle school dance, all right, where people were standing on one wall over here and other people were standing on this wall over here and everybody's kind of looking at each other. That's not how this went. This was a wild, raucous event. Because apparently there was an event that took place that was worth celebrating. And the father articulates exactly what that event was when he says, This son of mine, this one right here, he was dead. Now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And this is worth celebrating. This is what causes a rich father to run in an undignified manner. That's an event worthy of fireworks and hugs and dancing and high fives. But then this story takes a really interesting turn with the perfect word for this situation in verse 25 where it says, meanwhile. Meanwhile, the older son, remember there were two sons. The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So it's apparently loud because he can hear it from a ways off. So he called one of the servants and asked him, hey, what's going on? Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's, he, he has him back safe and sound. Verse 28, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now picture that. Picture him standing outside the party. Everyone's having a great time. He's got his arms crossed. He's frowning. He's, he's kicking dirt and throwing rocks because he's so ticked off that his father would do such a thing. And so his dad comes out. He catches word. He's like, Where, where's my other son? They're like, well, he's kind of mad. He's out there pouting. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with, with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. There's a lot we could pull out of there. I think the most important thing to pull out of there is, did you notice how this older son views his relationship with his father? He says, I slave for you. He uses the Greek word for slave, doulos. He, he thinks that he's earning his father's affection. He thinks he has to work for his father's love. And therefore, he cannot stand what his father's doing for his once called brother. See, one of the things I love about this church is we don't have many older brothers in this church. We got a few of them. I know we do because they have my email address memorized. But these are the people who find no joy in the party. These are the, the people who, who don't say it out loud, but here's the truth. They hate this story. 
And they don't like grace. And here's why. Because they don't think they need it. They live under this illusion that somehow, by what you do or don't do, you can earn the Father's love and affection. And they don't actually believe what the Bible says is that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and there's nothing we can do to earn our way back into our Father's affection. And it has to do with what the Father does for us. They don't actually believe that, and so they slave. They slave away. And they're the ones who don't think it's fair to throw a party for a rule breaker. And you know what? They're right. It's not fair. But thank God, God has more than fair on his heart. God has a relationship with you and me on his heart. And I want you to notice the gentle yet uncompromising response of the father in verse 31. He says, my son, calls him son. Doesn't use his son's term of slave. He says, my son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, you're calling him my son, he's also your brother, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. This is a definite response. We had to celebrate. We had to, son. Why? Because this is an event worthy of a celebration. Now, you don't have to have gone to church your whole life to know that this story has historically been called the prodigal son. And I'll be honest with you, I've been been going to church my whole life, and and I've never heard anybody define the word prodigal. It's not in the Bible. It's not a Bible word. Somebody just titled this several hundred years ago, the prodigal son, and that's what we kind of ran with for a while. But, But do you know what the word prodigal actually means? I was listening to a great teacher, his name's Louis Giglio, a few weeks ago. He was talking about this story a little bit, and he said, I'm going to define for you the word prodigal. And I kind of went, huh, nobody's ever done that before. But I also assumed I knew what it was. I assumed that it would be, you know, the definition of prodigal is lost or wayward or foolish or something like that. You know what the definition of the word prodigal is? Lavish and excessive. Lavish and excessive. Now, with that in mind, in the story that we've just journeyed through in mind, I've got to ask a question. Who's the most lavish character in the story? It's not the son. It's the father. The father is by far the most lavish and excessive person in this story. I mean, replay the tape in your, in your mind. I mean, watch as this father sits day after day on his front porch, scanning the horizon, hoping and praying that he will see his son walking back towards him one day. And every time he sees a figure come over the, the horizon, hope wells up within him only to be disappointed. But one day this figure comes up over the horizon and he recognizes the walk. It's a little slower and it's with a limp, but he recognizes that walk. I can recognize my kids walk from a mile away. And so does this father. And so he gets up and watch him as he runs. Watch him as he hitches up his robe between his legs in an undignified manner, runs. Watch him as he overwhelms his son, tackles him to the ground and lavishes love on him. And watch as love and grace and mercy just fall out of this father, but not just for the son who was lost. It's what we often miss. I don't know if you realize it or not, but he lavished love on the older son too. 
the self-righteous son, he exceeds all expectations as to how he should deal with that older son. Because just like we would think that a, a good father would maybe look at that lost son and go, son, I'll take you back, but here are the conditions and here's the program and I'm going to check on you and I'm going to drug test you and I'm going to do all these things. He doesn't do any of that. He just accepts him back as his son. And I would totally expect, and I'll be honest with you, I actually root for this to happen. As I read the father's interaction with the older son, there's a part of me, I've read it thousands of times, there's a part of me that every time I'm kind of going to wish, I just wish he would go, you know what? You ungrateful, self-righteous son, give me your inheritance, I'll give it to him and you get off the property. It's kind of what I root for. It's not what he does. He just firmly and securely says, you're my son. Everything I have is yours. And he lavishes love and grace on everyone involved. See, this story would be much better titled The Prodigal Father because of his lavish and excessive love. And do you know who the father represents? He represents God. That's who he represents in the story. And here's what I want you to hear today. I don't know how far you've run. I don't know what road to ruin you've gone down and I can hear your protests in your mind right now. You're going, Scott, I'm sure that that kid did some bad stuff, but listen, my stuff way outweighs his. I don't know how far he ran. All I know is I ran a lot further. Scott, there's no way there could be a father, a God like this who would take me back. There is no way. You've rehearsed your speech, haven't you? Go ahead, speak it to him. He'll interrupt you. He'll interrupt you with his lavish love that you cannot outrun. I don't care if you can pile your sin higher than the tallest mountain over there. This father's excessive love outweighs all of it by far. No contest. The lavishness of God's love far surpasses the excessiveness of your sin. Did you hear me? The lavishness of God's love far surpasses the excessiveness of your sin sin, no matter what kind of sin it is. There are about a million things that amaze me about this story, but one of them is that the the lost son, he only did one thing right. And it was a simple thing, right? The one thing he did right was to come to his senses and turn. He simply turned around and the father did the rest. He simply came to his senses, realized he couldn't fix the mess that he had made. He turned around in hope and his father exceeded all his hopes and calmed all his fears. That's a moment worthy of celebrating. That's an event worthy of throwing a party for. And I think that's why Jesus partied so much when he was here on this earth. And the partying continues to this day every time one of us lost children comes home. You see, apparently God loves running, loud noises, and children. All of it. First John 3, 1 says, How great is the love the Father has what? What? Lavished on us. That we should be called what? Children of God. See, and I think a father like this is more than worth celebrating. More than just sitting here on weekends, but this is why we gather here each week to celebrate this undignified, lavish, prodigal father. That's why we turn the music up, by the way. That's why we sing so loud, because we're just practicing for heaven. I don't know if you realize that or not, but I don't know what picture of heaven you have in your brain, but it's not a fat little baby with a diaper and a harp sitting on a cloud. That's Hallmark. That's not heaven. 
You want to know what our glimpses of heaven look like? You know what our glimpses of this new earth look like in Revelation 4 and 5? It says that there's loud peals of thunder and lightning and 10,000 times 10,000 angels flying around this throne. And by the way, 10,000 is the largest number they had. And so he said 10,000 times 10,000 so that we could just say uh, unfathomable number of angels plus all of God's children circled around this throne throwing a huge party. And in a loud, not quiet voice, singing lots of words, but three that stand out to me tonight. You are worthy. You're worth it. You are worth celebrating because you are our prodigal, lavish, and excessive father. You're worth it. And here's the thing. I know there's different groups of us here tonight. Some of us are lost kids tonight. You've gone down a long road of ruin it's taken the life right out of you. And you bought in a long time ago that you've gone too far. Not even close. You share your story with some people around here, they'll look at you and they'll say, is that all you got? There's another group of us around here, though. There's some older sons. And just like that, that younger son had to turn, had to repent, my prayer for you tonight is that you would turn. That you would give over this illusion that you have to somehow earn your father's love and you would just rest in the fact that you're a child of God and you can celebrate all of his children who come home. Because that's my hope for all of us tonight. My prayer for all of us tonight is that we could all be found grateful children of God. Let's pray. God, our father, it's amazing that you would even allow us to pray that we can call you dad and that you're a good dad father it just blows my mind that in the midst of all of our excessive sin you look at that and go I paid for that already that slate's been wiped clean God my hope my prayer tonight is that all of us would turn all of us would turn our hearts back to you that you would show up, I know you will, with your lavish and your excessive love. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.